Hey, Rarecast listeners, Global Genes Next 2021, A Time for Resilience and Ingenuity, is now available to download. This is our annual report on the major developments in rare disease and looks ahead to trends that are reshaping the landscape. To get your free electronic copy, go to globalgenes.org and look for a link to the report on the homepage. You can also go to bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. That's bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. The electronic version is free. On-demand print copies can also be ordered for a fee. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The Innovative Genomics Institute, a partnership between the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of California, San Francisco, led by the Nobel laureate Jennifer Doudna, is working to harness CRISPR-based genome editing to correct underlying mutations in monogenic diseases. The Institute is initially focusing its efforts on sickle cell disease and a rare familial autoimmune disorder. We spoke to Fyodor Ernov, Director of Technology and Translation at the Innovative Genomics Institute, about its efforts to advance genome editing technology, its work on sickle cell disease, and why it's critical for researchers to consider issues like access, affordability, and scalability in developing genetic medicines. This episode is part of our ongoing Platforms of Hope series. Theodore, thanks for joining us. Truly a pleasure. We're going to talk about gene editing, your work with the Innovative Genomics Institute, and the challenges that need to be overcome to realize the therapeutic potential of gene editing. I I know you've done a lot of work around sickle cell disease, and this is an area of interest to the Innovative Genomics Institute. I I thought we could focus our discussion of CRISPR around that because I think it elucidates some of the bigger issues that people need to think about. But for listeners not familiar with CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, let's start there. What is it and how does it work? Well, it's basically Microsoft Word for your DNA. Or if you don't don't like using Word, how about Google Docs? The, The term was coined nearly a couple of decades ago to describe a set of technology innovations that allows us to build molecular machines that we can send inside the living cell of a human, or for that matter, of a yeast cell and everything in between, including you know cows and corn. And that molecular machine um, enters the cell, then enters the nucleus, then seeks out a genetic stretch that needs to be changed and changes it. And you know Arthur C. Clarke famously said that any advanced technology is essentially indistinguishable from magic. Now that might be true in the generic. But for Cas-CRISPR, which is the latest form of gene editing, um, it doesn't have to feel magic. I can actually explain briefly how that actually works. So uh, the acronym CRISPR is probably the the hardest thing about it because it stands for this jaw-dropping constellation of words, clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. 
your, your audience is welcome to forget that immediately. Um, the reason I brought that up is, you know, more than two decades ago, scientists studying something completely unrelated to genetic disease, which is how bacteria defend themselves against uh, invaders. So bacteria have their own enemies, for example, phages, have found these very strange motifs, like regions of DNA in, in the DNA of bacteria that they could really not explain. And I'm, I'm going to, um, those are called CRISPR arrays. Um, and I'm going to skip through, you know, 15 years of work by 200 different labs to say, Mother Nature over the past several billion years has evolved a remarkable way for bacteria to fight against invaders. And it's that machine that has been repurposed in CRISPR-Cas gene editing. And the way that um, bacterial immune system works is if a bacterium is attacked by a foreign thing, let's say a virus of its own, then what the bacterium does is it cuts the DNA of the incoming offender into little pieces and then stores those little pieces in its own DNA you know, like little memories of the fact that it was once attacked. And now what? And now get now comes the fun part. Now comes the Cas9 part. So as Jennifer Doudna uh, here at UC Berkeley, and in partnership, of course, with Emmanuel Charpentier, uh, who just, of course, won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for uh, this discovery, learned. So the way that actually works to protect the bacterium and the way this gets repurposed to, you know, try to treat and in some recent cases, even cure sickle cell disease is the following. So... Uh, these little snippets of invader DNA that the bacterium has preserved for itself get copied into a different kind of nucleic acid called RNA or ribonucleic acid. And that's secondary to what happens next. So this remarkable protein, now its technical name is Cas9. I mean, if I were renaming it, I would call it wonder editor, genome editor thing. I mean, I would, I would, I would be a lot more eloquent than Cas9, but you know, scientists, we scientists tend to stick to nomenclature. So this protein called Cas9 takes that snippet of RNA and now patrols the cell. It literally looks around the bacterium and says, are there any sequences that are coming in that are related to the one that I'm carrying? So it's literally like a law enforcement official having with a, with a most wanted poster, with a, with a description, for example, a photograph where distinguishing features of somebody they're interested in apprehending. And if an invader shows up uh, and uh, it has a match to the little snippet of sequence Cas9 carries, Cas9 will cut up literally cut up the nucleic acid material of the invader coming in. So, you know, genius is a strong word, but I'm still going to use that word. So the genius of Jennifer and Emmanuel's discovery is the realization that you can repurpose this little molecular weapon, this little or molecular scissors or whatever metaphor you want to use to change human DNA or other DNA. And in very broad strokes, what you do, let's say you want to deal with sickle cell disease. And um, that's a good example to use because here at UC Berkeley in partnership with the University of California, San Francisco and the University of California, Los Angeles, it was a UC affair. And I should also say biotechnology companies on the East Coast, such as CRISPR Therapeutics, as well as uh, academic scientists here at, at, at Stanford University, Matt Porteous, have all used uh, CRISPR-Cas to develop a therapy, uh, well, an experimental therapeutic for sickle cell disease. And how does that connect to everything I just said about bacteria? Actually, quite simply, what you do is you take Cas9 and you program it with a short snippet of RNA to go inside the nucleus of a human blood stem cell, seek out the relevant genetic stretch, cut it, and then repair it in the case of the approach that we're taking here at the IGI or the one uh, that they're doing um, at um, Stanford, or which is kind of fun, in the case of the work that they're doing at CRISPR Therapeutics in, in Cambridge, 
they're actually making a genetic change that is disease protective. So it's not so much repairing the, the point mutation that causes sickle cell disease, but rather making a protective mutation. And that allows, allows me to wrap up with a more general point. The remarkable thing about CRISPR-Cas and the reason why literally every molecular and cell biology lab on earth uses it, and the reason it's the basis for so much excitement in biotechnology for, for diseases from cancer to HIV to the rarest diseases, which I think we'll, we should talk, we will talk about in a second, is the fact that you can program Cas or instruct it to repair a mutation of interest with relative major um, italics and boldface over the word relative with relative ease. Namely, you know, a traditional medicine such as a, you know, something like a chemical that uh, allow, you can use to treat cancer takes a lot of time to build. Uh, CRISPR-Cas can be engineered. Again, this is the discovery that Jennifer and Emmanuel made that was recognized with a Nobel Prize. CRISPR-Cas can be uh, directed to go to gene number four versus gene number seven using some relatively simple tricks of, of molecular biology. And that is why it's so exciting, not just for sickle cell disease, but, but conditions as rare, let's say, as bubble boy disease or as common, for example, as cardiovascular disease. CRISPR is often described as genetic scissors or in more medical terms, it's been described as a genetic scalpel. The metaphor suggests it's good for cutting. Editing often involves more than just cutting. How complete a tool for editing is it? You know, scientists uh, are one of, we, we are all uh, uh, ill with this disease known as per permanent pursuit of perfection. So the answer to your question is, scientists will never think that something is perfect. Um, the, the real question is, is it sufficiently potent and safe to, for example, you know, take a batch of human stem cells, repair with the mutation, and then put the stem cells back in, which in fact has already been done. But in the big picture terms, CRISPR-Cas, exactly as you point out, are molecular scissors or a scalpel, and what they do is cut DNA. And we continue to collaborate with Mother Nature. And what that means in practical terms is, once the DNA is cut, Mother Nature has evolved probably 3 billion years ago. So at, at some, of, some of the earliest pathways that evolved in Mother Nature were how to repair breaks like this, DNA breaks. And the simplest pathway is where, well, simplest concept, you know, uh, everything is relative. Uh, somewhat, a somewhat simple pathway is just to put the two ends back together again. And when that happens, sometimes mother nature makes a mistake and she gains or loses a few letters of genetic code. And that's how you can get rid of a gene. And so for example, there's currently a very interesting effort to uh, address the public health challenge of HIV by getting rid of a gene in the human immune system that protects again, that, that allows HIV to infect human cells. Separately, there's a very interesting effort to get rid of a gene um, that uh, when you lose it, you're, you're massively protected against uh, cardiovascular events like, like uh, heart attacks or strokes. So that's the cut and remove part. The cut and repair part, which is what, what you asked earlier, um, is a bit more sophisticated because not only do you need to cut, but you need to stick in um, an additional nucleic acid instruction, which, is basically, which basically says to Mother Nature, listen, there's been a break in your chromosome. Can you please repair that break? by transferring information from this exo exogenous piece of DNA to the chromosome. Now, in the case of sickle cell disease, what you do is quite literally, you, you tell Cas9 to cut the globin gene, which is where the mutation is that causes sickle cell disease. And you provide it a copy of the normal gene. And you say, mother nature, we will cut the globin gene. Can you please transfer this information to the chromosome? So most of the time she does that. Some of the time she leaves behind uh, some scars and it's a numbers game. To be honest with you, in, in, in therapy for disease, 
it's all about numbers in the sense that can you fix enough of the cells to give a person enough of a benefit? And the numbers vary widely. Like for bubble boy disease, you can fix literally single digit stem cells, literally. And they will expand to fill up the immune system and the rest of hematopoiesis to treat the child who has bubble boy disease. For sickle cell disease, you probably need to fix anywhere between 20 and 30% of your blood stem cells for it to be effective. And so the current clinical trials have gotten to that number, and we're really hopeful that they will, they will give patients benefit. But going back to my first point about scientists being perfectionists, all of us have our sleeves rolled up, making it more efficient to allow the efficiency of mutation correction to be even higher. Finally, um, again, scientists never sit rest on their laurels. Uh, there's been some really creative work, and I, I should credit David Liu, who's a scientist um, at, at the Broad Institute. He came up with a with a sort of next generation version of gene editing he calls base editing. And that allows you to uh, rewrite DNA precisely in the sense that change one letter to another without providing an exogenous repair template, which is in principle easier. And there are certainly some really neat, neat ways in which strategies of this type can be applied to genetic disease as well. The NIH has launched a program in somatic cell genome editing. What role do you see for federally funded research in this area? and what would you like to see NIH tackle versus what individual companies tackle or labs like yours do? I cannot salute NIH leadership strongly enough for their vision and wisdom in launching a strategic initiative supporting genome editing. And the reason is this. We have never had in the history of biomedicine a technology that has such a major potential to make such an impact in the lives of so many people for whom currently there are no options. And the good news is, since uh, the first clinical trials in gene editing happened in the late aughts, and since Jennifer's and Emmanuel's discovery of Cas CRISPR mechanism, as you point out, there has been a very formidable and frankly encouraging amount of progress in the private sector. So both large pharmaceutical companies and startup biotechs and mid-sized biotechs have really, really focused their efforts on you know, approaching disease number one, or let's say sickle cell disease, or disease number two, such as uh, hemophilia, or disease number three, uh, so for example, congenital blindness. And I'm literally listing programs that uh, biotechnology companies are, are working on. But the challenge is that there are 5,000 genetic diseases and they're all different. So in other words, um, when you think about the notion of a, of, a, of a word processor editor to repair a mutation, if you've, if you've just treated disease number three, to treat disease number four, let's say, you know, some rare immune deficiency, um, you need to rebuild your gene editor. And that's costly. It requires a lot of sophisticated expertise. And in many, many cases, the technologies don't even exist to either build an editor that would be efficient or to measure how safe that's going to be or to deliver it to the right part of the body. Now, while the biotech sector is working very hard on it, all of us in the field recognize that the rare diseases fall into that peculiar gap between things that are reasonably common to be commercially viable. So I mean, I mean, I'll give you a number. So one in 10,000 children, men, uh, male children born in the United States have hemophilia A, which is a disorder of blood clotting. Separately, you know, leaving aside carrier screening and prenatal genetic diagnostics, 
um, you know, one in 2000 live births uh, uh, of folks of European ancestry ha would have cystic fibrosis. And they're severe diseases. So in other words, they're relatively prevalent. So we can talk about several thousand, sometimes many thousands of folks with a particular genetic condition. Like it's, 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 a, it's a tragic but realistic true fact that we have a hundred thousand of our fellow Americans who have sickle cell disease. And it, it's a disease with a, you know, with a, with a, it's not an easy disease to have. Life, the life expectancy even in good standard of care is in their mid forties. Folks develop, get silent strokes, they get uh, organ damage. They have episodes of pain. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. So when you're talking about a condition which has 100,000 individuals, then you know the private sector can legitimately justify investing tens and tens of millions of dollars in building a cure because they can then recoup the investment. And I'll just actually give you a specific number. Um, by the, the pharmaceutical company Novartis uh, spent $8 billion um, acquiring a, a company that specializes in gene-based cures for disease, to be clear, this is not gene editing, this is gene therapy. It's an earlier form of, of, of genetic engineering. And they have an approved medicine for spinal muscular atrophy. They charge $2.1 million a patient. And as last I saw, they make about $300 million in sales every year because it's, it's, a, relatively, it's a tragic and relatively prevalent disease. So the commercial proposition is there. But now going back to why the federal government's role in this was really key and very wise and really, really salute the leadership, now consider a disease with 10 people. Where, oh, where will the money come from to, to build that? Now, CRISPR-Cas in principle is, is a tool that you can repair the mutation, but obviously, you know, we have ethics, we have the Food and Drug Administration, we have first do no harm, the principle of beneficence. We're not just gonna, you know, you can't have a CRISPR clinic in, the, in your garage. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're treating one human being or 10,000, you have to comply with the highest laws of protection of humans. So all of these folks with, quote, rare conditions, and I think quotation marks are appropriate because they're rare in the, in the individual. You know, there might be 10 people with a rare immune deficiency in the United States, but then the aggregate, there are hundreds, if not thousands. And the private sector, the for-profit sector really isn't configured to help. Furthermore, there is a lot of technology that needs to be built to really widen the spectrum of applications of uh, CRISPR gene editing. And the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium, I think is really, will really shine bright in the annals of biomedical history as an example of when the federal government stepped in at the right time in the right way to say, look it. We can wait for the marvelous forces of the market to play themselves out. And over the next five to 10 years, there will be more and more CRISPR cures. But the time we believe has come to invest in research that makes gene editing more efficient, more versatile, safer, being able to access more uh, parts of the, more, 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 more organs or cell types in the human. Because this will be one of those situations where, you know, the talk about the rising tide that lifts all boats, which incidentally, I, I just discovered something that President Kennedy said. Uh, he, he used that metaphor or that expression to explain why the federal government should invest in electricity infrastructure in, a, in Arkansas. He said, well, because everyone is connected. So I, I really, really see um, uh, the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium as sort of a, a conceptual, you know, almost interstate system that is, that is placed over our nation in terms of biomedical discovery with, with fuel stations and centers of excellence, where you can travel, uh, metaphorically speaking, as you put together 
a, a, a team to build a therapeutic and where you can, frankly, because this is federally funded research, you can start to cherry pick the various tools that the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium was providing when you are, let's say, an academic such as, you know, Jennifer Doudman, your humble servant here at, at UC Berkeley, or let's say, I'm going to give another great example, Dan Bauer at Children's Boston, or, you know, Mitch Weiss at St. Jude, or Matt Porteous at Stanford. I'm using specific names to highlight the fact that these are academic laboratories, powerhouses of gene editing that are actively engaged in putting together clinical trials for folks with rare disease. And we are incredibly grateful to the federal government for for basically providing the support, the infrastructure, the discoveries that we can, we can take off the shelf as we're building these sophisticated cures for genetic disease. The Innovative Genomics Institute has made sickle cell disease along with a, a rare familial autoimmune disease as the first indications it's focusing on. Why these conditions? Is there something that makes them well-suited for this approach relative to other monogenic diseases? Sickle and that rare immune condition that this person has are a primary area of focus of the IGI for two entirely unrelated um, but equally compelling reasons. And I'm going to start with, the, with I think, with the more important one, the, the severity of the unmet medical need. I mentioned earlier how dire the predicament of folks is with, with, with sickle. Um, it's, 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 it's truly tragic. I mean, it's, a, you know, um, as I like to say to people who ask me why I work on sickle, well, you know, um, what would it feel like to, um, you know, have a silent stroke? And they say, I don't know. And I say, well, I speak with physicians who treat children with sickle. And if one of them has a silent stroke, the physicians say, quote, it's, it's a hard thing to say even without choking up. The physicians say, when I look at my patients, it's like the light went out of their eyes. It's devastating. Or, you know, think about Miles Davis. He, he, there, he had sickle cell disease and he became addicted to painkillers. Um, and to this day, I'm very sad to say, well, I mean, it's a pragmatic fact that, that, that uh, opiate style painkillers are, is what is prescribed to folks who, when they get, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 acute pain episodes a year. And, you know, I, I, live, in, um, I live in Richmond, which is, which is a city, um, which is just next to Berkeley. And the reason I bring this up is it's a, there's a large um, African-American community and I drive uh, through my hometown to Berkeley. And, um, you know, to be very frank, before my eyes are, 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 are some of the glaring issues of socioeconomic disparity that, that we see in our society to this day. And I'm thinking about the fact that in the, my city of Richmond, there live folks with sickle and when they get pain, they get to a low, go to a local hospital to, to, to get a dose of opiates. And once the pain subsides, they have to return where they go through morphine withdrawal. And that's just, you know, that's just, I get goosebumps even saying that, right? So uh, the unmet medical need for sickle is dire. And the other component, and I wanna be very clear, I mean, um, the market has produced some magnificent outcomes. I mean, let's look at the COVID-19 vaccine. Tremendous investment in Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna was what drove the infrastructure that allowed Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna to manufacture the vaccines, to do the clinical trials. You know, the markets work. But it's just a pragmatic fact that if there is ever an approved medicine for sickle cell disease in the for-profit sector, based on everything we know so far on the pricing so far, it'll be 2 million a person. Now we turn to my home state of California, there are 10,000 of my fellow Californians with sickle cell disease. I believe that only 20% of them have private insurance. 
So the rest of them have to be covered by the state. Now you take 8,000 people and multiply that by 2 million, that's $16 billion. <laughs> the state of California doesn't have $16 billion. So the IGI chose to work on sickle cell disease because of equity. We strongly and passionately believe, and again, as I said to Jennifer recently, it was actually just on a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I said to her, you know, Jennifer, I'm so proud to work with you because, you know, the fact that you are leading the Institute in, 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 a, in an initiative that is so humane, you know, that focuses on building an equitable cure for sickle. Again, this is not an either or, this is not a zero sum game with a for-profit sector, but we at the IGI at UC Berkeley, Fiat Lux, let there be light as the motto of our institution. We, we, are, we feel connected to our community and to our, to our neighbors. And so the primary reason we're working on sickle is equity because we think that we can build in the non-for-profit sector an affordable cure. Now, this will take work, which is you know, what we're doing, but we strongly feel that. Um, separately, and exact same point with this person with a rare the disease of the immune system, I should really credit Alex Marson, who is a director at the IGI and who heads the Gladstone Institute for Genetic Immunology. It was he who pioneered this notion that we would be the first place, to the best of my knowledge, anywhere that would do a custom gene editing correction for one human being. Now, if you think about that, it's kind of like what I alluded to earlier, like jumping through all of these hoops to, to, to save one human. And the reason we're doing that, first of all, is out of a profound sense of empathy for this person's unmet medical need, which is quite dire, and that the fact that the clock is ticking, but also because we want to build a set of tools, solutions, almost like a framework to repair such end of one diseases that would be portable, scalable, and equitable. So that's reason number one, equity and unmet medical need. And yes, reason number two is, you know, it's currently tractable. You know, there are severe diseases of, of let's say, the brain, and they're genetic, and they're terrible. Let, let, let's pick frontier temporal dementia. It's an awful condition. But in order to treat it, we need to be able to deliver safely CRISPR to a good fraction of the forebrain. That technology doesn't yet exist, although we're working on it super hard. I mean, I'm going to compare this a little bit to, let's say, let's say we want to go to, to, to Mars. We kind of have all the pieces. We just need to work on putting them together, build all the technology, and then just do it. But now if you want to talk about, you know, traveling to further reaches of the solar system, now that starts to get an additional level of challenge that we currently don't have simple solutions for, although that doesn't mean it's impossible, right? I'm not talking about traveling to, you know, um, Sirius, the dog star, right? Which is probably a, a, theory, a conceptual impossibility. So the other component here is, Repairing diseases of the blood is currently technically feasible. It's not easy, but it is feasible. So we reason that we would sort of draw a Venn diagram between equity, unmet need, and technical feasibility. And in the Venn diagram, there emerged disorders of the blood, sickle came first for all the reasons I just alluded to, and rare disorders of the immune system are a logical extension because again, going back to my point about you know, rare, rare diseases, it would, it's going to cost millions to build a, a, a treatment for this person, which, you know, we, we have the good fortune of being at a nonprofit, which is philanthropically powered. And, um, but, you know, pharma is not going to invest and I, I'm not going to blame them millions of dollars into building an, an quote unquote N equals one therapeutic. So to recap the choice of sickle and separately, the choice of a very rare genetic disorder of the immune system is driven first and foremost by equity and unmet medical need. 
and separately technical feasibility, but with a mindset that we will build a set of solutions that will be able to be used by others. We're UC Berkeley, we're UCSF, we're an institution of the people of California and of our nation. So we are very committed to, pro to providing everything we learn to, to, to the rest of the world. We've actually had a case now of a patient who has been functionally cured of sickle cell disease with a CRISPR therapy. A number of efforts I'm aware of, rather than targeting the mutated gene or targeting a, a regulatory element to activate the production of fetal hemoglobin. What do we know about this approach to date? We learn from mother nature in magnificent ways. I spoke with you earlier about CRISPR, which was a lesson from mother nature. The magnificent way in which the scientists at CRISPR Therapeutics and the clinicians, of course, who did the clinical trial approached the problem of sickle was by learning from mother nature. So it turns out, um, you know, I spoke with you about the fact that folks with sickle cell disease and a related condition, beta thalassemia, have some fairly severe symptoms. So in the case of sickle, you, you, you have episodes of pain, you have uh, susceptibility to stroke, in, uh, and so on and so on. I mean, I could just go on and on. But one thing I hadn't mentioned is if you take, you know, 100 people with sickle cell disease, so at the genetic level, they have all that mutation. The disease is quite variable in its course. So for example, um, I, I have a neighbor in, in, in Richmond, um, an African-American woman, and we speak, you know, nearly every morning as we, well, I should say we spoke before the pandemic, <laughs> my goodness, uh, <laughs> as, we see, as we see each other on our way to work. And, you know, know each other's names, know each other's kids, it's all great. And, you know, I casually mentioned the fact that I work on sickle cell disease and she goes, oh, I have sickle. I go, wow. Because I mean, she literally looks like an Olympic athlete. She, she looks like she could be competing. She looks in magnificent health, you know, like. And so the reason I bring this up is this is an example of the fact that sickle cell disease is variable. Some folks are really, really quite ill. For some folks, they have genetically the disease but they're spectacularly functioning individuals like this, this person, she's, in, she's a healthcare provider. In that, there lay a genetic clue, which is what CRISPR therapeutics exploited. So 13 years ago, scientists have started to try to understand why is sickle cell disease genetically variable? And it turned out that some people who have the mutation that should give them sickle cell disease have a separate mutation in a different gene, nothing to do with hemoglobin beta, HBB, which is the gene mutated in sickle. What does that separate gene do? It protects them from sickle. And you will go, I'm sorry, what? Here's, here, here's the puzzle got unraveled and this has became the basis for the cure. So it turns out that when you and I or everybody else listening were inside our mommy's, mom's tummy, we were not making the hemoglobin that you and I make now. So right now we are making our red blood cells with Earl learned in high school, make this wonderful thing called hemoglobin. Now getting a touchdown into the technical details, although these are good technical details. Um, our hemoglobin that carries our, our oxygen and carbon dioxide um, through, our, through our bloodstream is actually consists of four pieces, two copies of a globin called beta and two copies of a globin called alpha. Why am I telling you this? In the when you are a fetus, you are not breathing air through your lungs you're breathing air through your umbilical cord that is connected to mom who is breathing air through her lungs. And for that reason, when you're a fetus, you are making a different kind of hemoglobin. So instead of the aforementioned beta globin, you make a different one and it's called, not surprisingly, a Greek letter gamma, also known as fetal hemoglobin. 
Now, okay, then you're born and what happens? And what happens is then mother nature switches. What does that mean? She goes, oh, wow, I'm a baby. I've just been born. I no longer need to make this fetal hemoglobin that I used to make when I was inside my mother's womb connected to her via an umbilical cord. I can now start making adult globin. Remarkably, this happens even in folks who have a genetic mutation in, in adult globin, such as sickle cell disease. So this means that a newborn child with sickle does not have sickle cell disease because they're still running on their perfectly normal fetal hemoglobin. They start to develop symptoms a little while after birth as mother nature, who is blind to this situation, says, okay, fine, I'm gonna shut, shut off this fetal one, I'm gonna turn on the adult one, and then the child develops sickle cell disease. If only we could prevent this switch from happening, but how to do that? And the clue to how to do that came from the study of folks, such as my wonderful neighbor, who seems to be in the prime of health and yet genetically has sickle cell disease. So it turns out, although I shouldn't really speak about her because I don't know that that's exactly what's happening with her hemoglobin, but many folks like that and I've met some of them. So it turns out that they never complete the switch from making their fetal globin to making the adult. And they walk around, they're just fine. They have no symptoms whatsoever. And a good chunk of their globin is in fact not adult, it's fetal. Now, to be very, very clear, this doesn't make them babies. They're perfectly functioning adults. It's just in their blood, in their red blood cells, the hemoglobin is the fetal one to some extent. So it turns out that how much of that fetal globin people make is genetic. And there is a gene that controls that. And it has a jaw-breaking name, and I'm really sorry. It's called BCL11A. It's one of those names that you think and you immediately forget. What is more interesting is what it does. Among many things it does, it requires for the nervous system, for stem cells, it controls the switch from fetal globin when you're just born to adult. And what scientists at CRISPR Therapeutics have done is they have developed a way to inactivate that gene, BCL11A, but not by just getting rid of it because that would not be good. They found a way to inactivate a regulatory switch. I need to explain this concept real quick. Yes, we have 20,000 genes, but they don't all work all the time. You know, for example, you know, your nerve cells don't make digestive enzymes and you know, um, your, your skin doesn't make uh, uh, proteins that causes muscles to contract. So the way that is controlled is every gene has a gene switch. It's a little sequence of DNA that tells that gene what to do. BCL11A has a little gene switch that flips it on in erythrocytes to control which globin gets made. It is that gene switch that scientists at CRISPR therapeutics have gotten rid of. And, but, but the really amazing thing is Victoria Gray, this magnificent heroic woman who consented to be a patient on a subject on CRISPR therapeutics clinical trial. She um, basically um, had her stem cells removed from her body, which is a, a known medical procedure. And scientists then used CRISPR to get rid of this little switch that controls whether her red blood cells make fetal globin or adult globin. And those cells said, oh, wow, we have this perfectly normal globin. We have like a spare tire in the trunk of our car. Let's turn that back on. And that's exactly what happened. And so again, my fingers are crossed. All of us in the field are so rooting for her. Um, and, there, uh, and the cells got returned to her and all the clinical data we've seen so far show that that's, that, that flip of the genetic switch has worked in the sense that her red blood cells now contain fetal hemoglobin and she doesn't have sickle cell disease anymore because 
that fetal hemoglobin has replaced the defective sickle one. I know I spoke for a little while and I know this was a little bit convoluted. Bottom line, scientists have gotten really sophisticated at genetically engineering human cells and understanding the genetic basis of human disease susceptibility and protection to do these kind of acrobatics that have actually worked in the clinic. One of the things you've said about her case is that it serves as a proof of concept that in the age of CRISPR, the entire genome is a druggable target. I'm wondering if you can explain and expand on that thought. You know, um, if you had told me 20 years ago or even 15 years ago that I would ever use that phrase, um, I, I, I would politely suggest that you know you 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 walk over to the science fiction aisle of the bookstore. Um, Historically, you know, when I was training in biology as an undergrad in the 80s and a graduate student in the 90s, we knew that medicine is basically several things. It's surgery, so you cut things out or you connect them, or um, chemotherapy, like, you know, you, you use harsh camp chemicals, or you, you, you use uh, small molecules. You know, here I, this morning I had a headache. I took, took some ibuprofen. My headache is gone. Um, what's ibuprofen? It's a chemical and it goes into your body and it latches onto a particular protein, an enzyme, and it, it prevents that enzyme from working and I don't have a headache anymore. Woohoo! Here's the problem. Many, many diseases are caused by dysfunctions in proteins that we can't really engineer that chemical for. For many reasons, like some of the proteins, they just, our technologies are not good enough. So historically, the universe of diseases has been parsed into those that have, quote, druggable targets. What does that mean in English? It means scientists and chemists, chem chemists and biologists and clinicians can engineer a small molecule such as, you know, ibuprofen. And they can, uh, it will work to treat a specific condition. And those are the druggable targets. And those were the undruggable targets. Like, yeah, like we know that this condition is caused by this thing, but there's like literally nothing we can do. And then of course came CRISPR. And CRISPR is Microsoft word for your DNA. And so here at the IGI or in many labs across the nation or the world, there are scientists who can take a piece of DNA, any DNA and make a CRISPR that can change it. That means that we can start thinking about intervening with diseases for which frankly, we didn't think we had a shot on goal. Now, it happens to be this case that this rather elaborate narrative of this great switch of BCL from fetal to adult hemoglobin production is exhibit 1A. Uh, I mentioned to you that we didn't really engage with a protein product such as we would do with a small molecule or an antibody or a messenger RNA such as we would engage with an antisense technology. We literally repaired a genetic switch. There was never a technology to do that until CRISPR. I'm just gonna give you two quick examples of, of how amazing these kinds of things uh, could really be. So um, there are folks who um, don't experience pain and this is called congenital insensitivity to pain. That is not a good thing. And in fact, I'm very sorry to say that the genetic basis of this was elucidated in, in a child from Pakistan who, again, it's one of those stories where you can't even say it without choking up. So th this boy experienced no pain and he performed street theater for money. And, and he, he died because he jumped on a bet for money from a roof. He felt no, at least, I mean, again, it's hard to say this without choking up, but at least he died without feeling pain. So a study of his family led to the realization that that 
child had a genetic change in a gene, and it has obviously a technical name, which will mean nothing to most of the folks in the audience, called NAV1.7. Okay, great, NAV1.7. But it is a transmitter of the pain signal, and it lives in your spine. Pharma has spent billions and truly the most brilliant people who work on this and have failed to produce a small molecule that would inhibit the activity of that channel. Because while we don't wish to give people insensitivity to pain, we have the tragedy of the fentanyl epidemic. Why does fentanyl exist? It's a very potent narcotic that is used for pain that's resistant to conventional morphine. Well, now imagine a setting and where we take a human being with severe pain, let's say acute trigeminal neuralgia or cancer pain due to a cancer metastasis. And we built a CRISPR and we deliver that CRISPR to the spinal cord, to the segment of the spine that either innervates the face, such as for trigeminal neuralgia, or the part of the body that the horrible pain causing metastasis is. And that CRISPR goes and selectively inactivates that pain sensitivity gene in that segment of the spine to alleviate that person's suffering. You don't have to imagine this, people are doing it. And here's a yet another example of the whole genome as a druggable target. Pharma has spent a decade trying to quote, drug that gene, that pain gene, NAV1.7, using a conventional chemical that failed. Enter the age of CRISPR. Targeting individual patients and treating patients broadly with the condition are, are two separate issues. You know, in the case of Victoria Gray, we, we know we can do this now, but as you think about a condition that affects people throughout the world and, and in places where medical economics are quite different than the United States, where do you see the biggest translational challenges for using CRISPR into therapeutic applications? And, and what role do issues like access, affordability, and scalability play in how you conceive of a therapeutic approach? I have to share two, two um, stories um, that really inspire me and you know, so many of my colleagues as we work on this. The first one is an incredibly grim statistic. Today, if you are a child, a 16-year-old child, a, a girl in South Africa, your lifetime chances of being infected with HIV are 80%, eight, zero. And that's a devastating number to think about. Um, and now we leap over to the world of CRISPR where we know that there are rare individuals who lack a normal copy of a gene called CCR5. And those individuals are resistant to the most common form of HIV. And your mind immediately starts to write a fairy tale. And I deliberately use this strong turn of phrase where we have CRISPR in a syringe and it's stable at room temperature. And you travel to parts of the world where um, HIV prevalence is quite high and you offer individuals a genetic vaccine um, you know, in their teens against HIV. You inject CRISPR and CRISPR gets into your immune system and gets rid of CCR5. And even if you're exposed to HIV later through the, you know, the, the challenging predicament of the world you live in, you will be genetically resistant. So why did I use the word fairy tale? Because, because it involves solving um, so many things 
that we currently don't have. That it feels borderline, you know, we need a fairy godmother to fly in and wave a magic wand. Having said all this, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer, I'm trying to be Debbie Realist. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, a journey of a thousand miles has to start with a single step as the famous Chinese proverb goes. The urgency of that unmet medical need is enormous. You know, I mentioned 100,000 folks with sickle cell disease. You know, there are that many folks born with sickle in Nigeria alone every year and the life expectancy of a child in Nigeria is five with sickle cell disease. Now, I told you that we can repair sickle, um, but now sort of marvelous utopian story number two is where, you know, there's syringes or pills with, with CRISPR in them, shelf stable, given to Nigerian parents that if they have a child with, with sickle, then they guess just get CRISPRed. So what do we need to solve for? And I'm gonna start from the, I'm gonna, this is where to me, again, I'm a scientist, I'm a gene editor, I'm a molecular biologist. I'm not a healthcare economist, I think the first thing that we have to be th think forward to is when we solve all the technical challenges, which we will, what will it take for the world to be the kind of decent place where we, where we deliver these life-saving cures to those most in need? And yes, you know, we've eradicated polio, we've eradicated smallpox as a species, but have we had a good track record of delivering life-saving cures uh, against terrible disease, even when those cures exist to the part of the world where there, there is a burning need. Honestly, you know, I, I don't think we have a stellar track record. So I think num the number one question for me, as somebody who sits in the molecular biology lab on the beautiful UC Berkeley campus, is the fact that the real need is in, you know, is in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, in, 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 you know in, in, in Southeast Asia. You know, there are parts of Thailand, for example, where the, the, the percentage of folks who carry uh, mutations that cause them to develop severe genetic diseases of the blood is like 20 to 30%. I've traveled there. The, you know, the, 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 the clinics are, are replete with folks suffering from this. So first and foremost, in order for the fairy tale to become reality, we need to forward integrate healthcare economics and how the world thinks about this to when we will be able to deliver equitably to those most in need. Frankly, relative to that, the technical challenges seem slightly less utopian. So I mentioned CRISPR is in a syringe. Here's the good news. There already is CRISPR in a syringe. There is a company, Intellia Therapeutics. Uh, sorry, Intel, yeah, Intellia, I'm true. They, they're either all called something medicine or something therapeutics. I think Intellia is Intellia <laughs> Which is fine, it's great. I mean, they're, they're doing the same thing. Um, so Intellia has actually injected somebody with CRISPR, which is amazing. There is a human being into whose circulation CRISPR was injected and edited that person's liver. Separately, a company called Editus, uh, also in Cambridge, has injected somebody's eye with CRISPR to tr treat their blindness. So the proof of concept of CRISPR in a syringe is there. Now what needs to happen, and this is actually currently happening, a major area of focus of the Innovative Genomics Institute, a major focus of, of the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium, which the NIH has funded, which I think is exactly what to do. A major focus of all of those efforts is how do we make CRISPR sufficiently versatile and safe so that we can seriously talk about putting it in a syringe and going out to South Africa or going out to Thailand we're going out to Nigeria and looking a person in the eye or parents in the eye of a person in the case of an adult who can give informed consent 
or parents of a child who would have to consent on behalf of their child and say, folks, we are here and we are with a syringe and it has CRISPR and it is safe, or at least as best as we can tell. So for that, we need to engineer better ways to deliver CRISPR. We need to engineer better ways to determine, to measure its safety. And uh, we also need to um, basically put all of that together in sort of what I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use a, an industry term, vertically integrated effort. Uh, vertical integration is, you know, I'm sure folks in the audience have seen uh, the Avengers. Uh, vertical integration is when you have multiple superheroes with non-overlapping superpowers and they all together solve one large problem. That's vertical integration. So a CRISPR cure in a syringe for as a genetic vaccine for HIV or to treat pain or to treat the hemoglobinopathies in you know, Thailand or, or Nigeria, was gonna take a vertically integrated effort of folks you know, such as your humble servant and you know, uh, my colleagues at the Innovative Genomics Institute led by Jennifer in building the molecular biology, building the delivery tools, building better safety assays. And again, what the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium has, has funded many, many labs towards, but then integrating that with thoughtfully structured clinical trials. Like you realize, for example, before we can offer somebody CRISPR for HIV as a vaccine, we have to show that it is safe to treat the disease, right? Before we can treat a child with a CRISPR in a syringe for their sickle cell disease, we have to show that it's safe in adults. That is not cheap and that takes time. And again, the, I think really the, 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 tremendous, the tremendous feature of the sort of the nonprofits, the, the academic institutions and the federal government is the realization that with all for all the glorious might of the market, um, this is something that the nonprofit public sector really should be looking at pretty hard. And that's why we're doing this. Fyodor Ernov, Professor of Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of California and Director of Technology and Translation at the Innovative Genomics Institute. Fyodor, thanks so much for your time today. Truly a pleasure. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.